This is Curl Up With a Cat Tale, and I'm Gwen Cooper, the New York Times bestselling author of numerous cat-centric titles, including Homer's Odyssey, A Fearless Feline Tale, or How I Learned About Love and Life with a Blind Wonder Cat, Spray Anything, More True Tales of Homer and the Gang, and The Book of Possum, Head Bonks, Raspy Tongues, and 101 Reasons Why Cats Make Us So, So Happy. We're here to celebrate all things feline and to tell inspirational cat tales. Let's get started. Hello, and welcome to Curl Up with a Cat Tale with Gwen Cooper. I am, of course, Gwen Cooper, your host, and delighted to be here. Later on in today's episode, we will be, or I will be answering a question. I don't know why I'm slipping into the into the editorial we, the royal we. We will be answering. Um, I will be answering a question from reader Sherry Yastrop. And if you would like to submit a question for me to answer in a future episode of Curl Up with a Cat Tail, or if you'd like to learn more about my books, or if you'd like to grab a free copy of an all-new book about Homer the Blind Wonder Cat, or to find out how you can get your name and your cat's name included in future books that I write, or if you just want to subscribe to the RSS feed for this podcast to make sure that you never miss the drop of a new episode, head on over to my website, GwenCooper.com. That's G-W-E-N-C-O-O-P-E-R.com right now. And you can do all those things and more. And you can get a look at my brand new website about which I'm very, very excited because I built this one with my own two hands using one of those DIY, you know, build your own website tools. And I have to say that I am delighted with the results. So head on over, check it out, take a look at it in all its glory, and then come on back here to spend some more time with me curling up with a cattail. And while I will be answering reader Sherry Yastrop's question later on in this episode, I'm actually going to kick off the episode by answering another reader question, uh, because this is sort of an interesting one. So I, I asked people to send me questions that they would like for me to hear me answer, on one of my first few episodes of the Curl Up with a Cattail podcast. And I got quite a few responses, most of them of the, you know, tell us something new about Homer. What did you, what was the greatest thing you learned from him? What did you like about him most? Um, How did you get started writing your first book? How did you get your first book published? And so on. Uh, This question, however, was submitted by reader Tony Dillard, and it is a different question. And one that I will confess might actually keep me up at nights. And the question that Tony Dillard, I should preface this by saying, by the way, that when I asked for questions, I assumed that that people already knew uh, what I know to be true about myself, which is that I am not an expert on cats general. I'm a lover of cats, and I like to think of myself, hopefully, as a writer, as, as a keen observer of cats. I'm a, a, certainly a cat enthusiast. But I am not a cat expert. I'm not a cat behavioralist. I'm certainly not a veterinarian or any sort of a medical professional. Um, You know, people will sometimes assume that because I've written so many books about cats and about my cats that I am an authority on cats in general. And what I always say is that I'm really not an authority on any cats except my own. But this question came from reader Tony Dillard, and and so it's... it's, uh, So it's a little bit of a a philosophical question, I think. Um, And the question is, 
How much white on a black cat makes it no longer a black cat? I had a cat as a child named Midnight who had a white crescent moon on her chest. I considered her a black cat. Am I wrong? And uh, and and I feel like like this is a definite. This is sort of a head scratcher. It's it's it's, you know, one of those questions that maybe ultimately has no true answer. You know, like what is man's role in the universe, or or why do we hurt the ones we love? Uh, there are some mysteries in life that will forever remain inexplicable, and I sense that this is one of them. If you feel like you have an answer to this question, how much white on a black cat? makes the cat no longer a black cat, by all means, feel free to write to me and and perhaps we can get Tony's question answered for him. But again, I think all questions of, of the purity of blackness in a cat um, really probably comes down to your own perception. I don't know if there's a quantifiable answer to that question, uh, but I sense that it is it is going to be one of the many things that are that are now keeping me awake at night. Um, and that is really true because, because you guys, I am not, I am not sleeping well lately. I, I just have not been sleeping well at nights. Um, some of that is climate related. Some of that is, is cat related. Some of that is, is the interaction between the two. And I will, of course, explain. So as I said in my first episode of Curl Up with a Cat Tale, I live in, my husband and I live in, in this beautiful old Victorian house. Our house was built in 1860. So that makes it officially an old house. And of course, being an old house, it does not have central air or heat. And so it, which can make climate control for, for me and for Lawrence and for the cats, a little bit of a challenge, particularly in, in the depths of winter or the real dog days uh, or, or, or cat days, should I say cat days? Uh, but, but the real you know, there's really hot, muggy days of summer. All cats, of course, generally tend to prefer warm weather. And my cats are no different. But Fanny is is a real, she's a real, I guess I would say heat enthusiast more than any cat I've ever had. Fanny just loves the heat. It cannot be hot enough as far as Fanny is concerned. For example, in the summer, um, on the third floor of our house where the ceilings are not particularly high. And of course it, it is, you know, the third floor is the highest floor of the house. That's where our bedroom is. And that's where Lawrence's office is. And in the summer when it is, you know, in the high nineties or low hundreds outside, it is easily well above a hundred degrees in our bedroom during the day, because obviously we, we have no central air and we do have a wall unit in the bedroom, but that is not turned on while Lawrence is in his office and I'm working downstairs. And that will always be the room. You know, again, Fanny cannot be hot enough. So Fanny will go into that room truly when it's 100 plus degrees. She will look for a patch of sunlight falling through the window so that so she can make it even hotter than it already is. And she will sprawl out and she will get to like this maximum sprawl, you know, where it's not just that she's on her side or on her back, but every part of her body is just stretched out as far as she can stretch it out. So she can get as much heat falling on her body as she possibly can. And she will lie there in the patch of sunlight in the hundred plus degree room and until her little her little tummy is so toasty that you you know, and she's an all black cat, so her fur really absorbs the the heat like like a like like tar on on a hot street. 
and you touch her and you feel like she's just been in an oven. She feels like a cat who's just been baking in a kiln or something like that. And she is as happy as a cat can be. So needless to say, of course, Fanny is not a big fan of the winter. Um, but she is a fan of our radiators. Again, we do not have central heat. What we have are radiators, these giant metal old-fashioned radiators in most of the rooms of the house. And again, what Fanny will do in the winter is, you know, so I put her blankie in front of the radiator in the bedroom and that is where Fanny will sprawl out. So the heat is coming out of the radiator. And no matter how cold it is outside, if you are standing right in front of the radiator, it does not take very long for it to become unbearably hot. It, it's a radiator. You know, the, the, the heat coming out of the radiator is, is real heat. It is intense heat. But again, Fanny, you know, she lies on her blankie directly in front of the radiator and sprawls out. She, she gets on her... She likes to lie on her side with with her tummy facing the radiator. So she has this this really this really hot belly within a very short period of time. So this is Fanny's favorite thing. And of course, I cannot bear to deprive her of it for any amount of time. And that includes at night when we all go to bed. I keep the radiator I keep the radiator on full blast, not just because it gets colder in the in the middle of the night, particularly for the cats. But also because Fanny just loves that radiator. She loves sleeping in front of it. She likes being in the room where we are. And she likes being in front of the radiator. And the only problem with that, of course, is that it gets really, really hot in the bedroom within a not particularly long period of time. To to counteract this, what I end up doing is putting on the air conditioning in the bedroom in the depths of winter to counteract the effect of of the intensely heating radiator that is being left on at full blast in the bedroom. So I have, in effect, created different climate zones within this one room. I, I keep expecting to wake up to a tornado or, or perhaps uh, some sleet or hail or something of that effect, just to have, you know, this wall of hot air and this wall of cold air meeting each other within a relatively small space. And... And so it will literally be the case that it will be, as it was a few days ago, 15 degrees outside. And yet we, I, like an idiot, am running the air conditioning in the bedroom. And of course, the problem is that that this is a very imperfect state of affairs, right? Because even with the radiator going full blast, you put on the air conditioning in the bedroom when it's 15 degrees outside and it will eventually get too cold in the bedroom. But the flip side is without the air conditioning, with just the radiator going and nothing to counteract it, it very quickly becomes too hot. And so what ends up happening is that I keep getting up, you know, waking up every, I don't know, 60 to 90 minutes to either turn the air conditioner off or, or, or set its temperature a little bit. You know, we have a remote control, so it's not like I have to get out of bed to do this. But turning the air conditioning on, turning it off, may, adjusting its temperature so it's a little cooler, a little hotter. You know, I'm, I'm trying to to find that magical temperature uh, that I realize does not exist. But in the in the middle of the night, I keep thinking that that I will find it. That there is a magical temperature at which I can set the air conditioning so that I will be completely comfortable all night long and will not have to get up to adjust it at all. I have yet to find that temperature. Uh, 
The other thing, of course, would be for me to just sleep through it, you know, to just remain sleeping. I don't know when I became so princess and the pea that if it's five degrees too hot or five degrees too cold, I apparently can't sleep anymore. And it occurred to me that maybe that was the real problem, that the problem is not so much the temperature in the room per se, but that I've become too sensitive a sleeper. So I saw an ad. uh, I don't even remember where I saw it. I'm not even sure to tell you the truth how Facebook and Amazon were aware of the fact that I'm having trouble sleeping because I had not Googled, I have not done any searches around sleep problems, sleep trouble, insomnia, anything like that. So it's a little spooky to me to tell you the truth, how they knew to serve me this ad. I wonder if, you know, I wonder sometimes if my devices are are eavesdropping on the conversations that I have with Lawrence and then showing me things pertaining to those conversations. But that that is, of course... A conversation for a different time and and probably a different podcast. But anyway, I saw an ad for this product and it was a lavender spray. And the idea is that you spray it all over your pillows and you get a much better, much deeper night sleep that you sleep all the way through the night without waking up. And I thought, okay, Uh, you know, I was somewhat skeptical, but for $17.99, I figured I would try it. And what's the worst that could happen is that I spend $17.99 to buy something to spray all over my pillows that makes my pillow smell better, even if it doesn't necessarily help me sleep better. So I got the spray yesterday. I was very excited to try it last night, and I did. I sprayed my pillows, and and we have a king-size bed, so we have those long king-sized pillows on the bed. And I sprayed this lavender spray all over both of the pillows that I sleep on and and settled in, and it did smell wonderful and and very, you know, very relaxing, very, very pretty. Um, I was very excited to to see how this was going to aid my sleep. And I guess at least to my cats, lavender and catnip must smell very similar because I kept waking up in the middle of the night to find one or both of my cats kind of doing that, you know, when they're on their backs and they're doing that rolly flippy thing that catnip makes them do when they're just sort of lolling around in in a kind of drugged out blissful ecstasy. Well, that's what my cats were doing or at least attempting to do on my pillow while I was sleeping on it. And then I guess some of the lavender smell must have gotten into my hair because they kept burying their faces in my hair and, and nipping at my scalp uh, I mean, when I say nipping at my scalp, I, I don't mean that they were biting me, but, you know, they were they were trying to get at the catnip and they were nipping at the pillows and nipping at the pillowcases and rolling around. I, you know, I, I kept waking up with like my nose in, in a cat belly and a, at least a couple of paws tangled up in my hair. And then they would sort of try to flip back the other way. They'd roll toward me. Now they're trying to roll to in the other direction in their blissed out, drugged out ecstasy. And they, of course, caught my hair in their paws. So now they're rolling over and they're they're pulling my hair with them. It was not the blissful and restful night's sleep that the label had promised me. And at around three in the morning, I said, you know, this is just ridiculous. And for the first time in a long time, I tried to put the cats outside the bedroom so that I could at least get some sleep. I was like, you know what? They can. I'm going to put them out. And I'm going to turn off the radiator and I am going to, <laughs> to salvage whatever I can of, of this night's sleep. But then, of course, they started crying and crying at the door relentlessly. 
And I was afraid that they would wake Lawrence up, although I don't know why I was afraid that they would wake Lawrence up because Lawrence does not wake up. Lawrence is just about the sound of sleeper that I know. And the, the story that I like to tell, you know, I guess it's men. Men probably sleep better than women in general. But the story that I like to tell about how deep and, and good a sleeper Lawrence is, is the time 10 years ago we were flying to Hawaii. And Lawrence is the kind of person that before a plane is even talk, taken off, the second he gets on the plane, the second he's settled in his seat, he's out like a light. And he will sleep at least half the flight. And we were flying to Hawaii from New York. So it was a long flight. Uh, the flight actually connected through Phoenix. So we got off at Phoenix. We got onto a different plane. We'd been on that plane for about two hours. It had just gotten out from Phoenix to the Pacific Ocean. When the pilot comes over the loudspeaker, at, and Lawrence is sleeping next to me, and the pilot says, ladies and gentlemen, we're very sorry for the inconvenience. We are going to have to turn the plane around and head back to Phoenix. We're having a problem with the electrical system. It's not working over water. So we are going to fly back to Phoenix and put you on a different plane. And Lawrence wakes up and, and asks, you know, kind of wakes up when he hears that the pilot is making an announcement and asks what's happening. And I repeat to him what the pilot has just said. And I'm looking out the window as I'm explaining this to Lawrence, because we are actually over water. You know, the pilot is saying that the plane's electrical system is not working over water. And we are at that moment over water. And it's true that everybody sounded very calm. But, you know, as I said to Lawrence, I said, you know, it occurs to me that we might be about to plunge to a fiery death right now. And they're just not telling us because they want us to stay calm. And Lawrence said, huh, you know, you're right. And then the next sound I heard was Lawrence snoring next to me. Having fallen back asleep, despite the fact that we had just been informed, basically, that that we might be in a plane, that we were in a plane that was possibly about to crash. So Lawrence is a sound sleeper. Lawrence can sleep through just about anything. And he'll be the first one to tell you, to, to not only tell you that story is true, but to say, you know, I figured, hey, if the plane's going to crash, do I want to be awake for that? And fair enough. I also would not have wanted to be awake for that. It was just in my case, not so much of a choice as apparently it was for Lawrence, who could immediately fall back asleep. Um, so I didn't fall back asleep. And, and at that point, so now it's three in the morning. The, the cats are, are rolling all over my pillows. You know, they, I put them outside. They were crying so much. I let them come back in. They immediately went back to my side of the bed and were rolling all over my pillows. And at that point, it was just very clear that I was not going to be sleeping again in my bed that night. So this is all by way of saying that I have been up since three o'clock this morning. Uh, my cats, of course, cannot say the same thing. They they have been up, but they they went back to sleep. They napped. They look completely refreshed, as does Lawrence. It is, of course, all well and good for the cats, right? Because not only can they sleep all day, but even if they were suddenly... And, and you really never hear about insomniac cats. You just never hear about cats with sleeping problems. I, I've literally never heard of all... In, in more than a decade online, in daily communication with other cat people, where we talk so frequently about any number of health issues that our cats face... I've actually never heard of a cat insomniac. You know, you know, just never hear about a cat who just paces the floors all day and all night and and cannot fall asleep. I, I don't think that's a thing. But even if it were a thing, 
it would still be fine for the cats because they, of course, are covered in fur. And so they don't get wrinkles and dark circles under their eyes and bags and things like that that we humans have to worry about when we don't sleep sufficiently. So tonight, I don't know if I'm going to be permitted the the luxury, the rare luxury of actually putting the cats out of the bedroom. I think what I might do is just sneak into the bedroom. And that way the cats, I mean, into the guest bedroom. Um, if I already, if I said guest bedroom twice, I apologize again. I've been up since around three o'clock this morning. Um, but yeah, you know, let Lawrence have the bed, let Fanny have her radiator, let Clayton and Fanny both have the main bed like they always do. And, and the now lavender scented pillowcases that I'm going to have to launder probably before I can sleep in them again. And I may just hit the guest bedroom uh, which is also Lawrence's office, and and see if perhaps I can get a good night's sleep there. But I will, of course, not be doing this before I answer today's reader question from reader Sherry Astrop. And Sherry Astrop's question is, how did you get started with your first book? And that seemed like a good kind of basic introductory question for me to answer in one of the first introductory episodes of my podcast. How did I get started with my first book? My first book, by the way, uh, and not everybody knows this. uh, Many of you know this, but not all of you know this. So Homer's Odyssey was not actually my first book. My first book was a novel called Diary of a South Beach Party Girl. It is my one cat-free book. There are no cats mentioned or even hinted at anywhere in that book. It's a novel about South Beach in the 90s. Loosely based on my personal experiences, although it, it is not an autobiography by any stretch of the imagination. So, you know, when somebody asks you, how did you get started with your first book? They, they could mean one of two things. They could mean, how did you first get started with the writing? Or how did you manage to get your first book published? I'm going to assume that, that what Shari's asking is how I got started with the writing. Although I will say very briefly, and I could certainly expound upon this at a later time, but how I got started with publishing was really very simple. Once I realized I was actually going, I was likely to complete a manuscript that that I was going to not just say that I was going to write a book, but that I really was going to write a book and that I would want to get it published. Um, I Googled how to get a book published. That's how I got started. That's how I got started in publishing Literally, I Googled how to get a book published. And I still have people who write to me and will say, who will ask me, who will say, I've written a manuscript, I've written a novel, I've written a memoir, I've written whatever it is about my cat, I've written a children's book, et cetera, et cetera. Please tell me how to get this published. And I will inevitably write back to these people and and truly not trying to be a jerk about it, uh, but really trying to be helpful. I will always write back and suggest to them you know, I say I always say if you want to get professionally published, if you want to be published by, you know, one of one of the the big five publishers, if you want to be published by a Random House or a Simon and Schuster or even maybe a smaller independent publisher, what you really need is a literary agent. And the best way to find a literary agent is to Google how to find a literary agent, because you will immediately get all kinds of articles and and you know tips on books that you should read. And so much more information than I could possibly give anyone in the space of a single email that it would really be doing you a disservice if I were to try to tell you in a couple of paragraphs how you go about doing it. Um, so this is what I always say. I always suggest that people hit Google and and find as much information about how publishing works as they can. Uh, perhaps not surprisingly, no one has ever, ever 
written back to say, thanks for taking the time to answer my question. I think maybe they think that I'm brushing them off in some way. Although I secretly suspect that what they're really asking isn't so much, they're not really so much asking me how to get a book published as they are hoping that I will get their book published for them. That I will say, you know, you should send me this manuscript and that I will read it and love it so much that I will take it to my agent who will take it to an editor and, you know, fame and fortune will quickly follow with very little inconvenience or effort on their part. I could be wrong about that. That might be uncharitable. But again, the fact that nobody ever writes back and, and says thanks for taking the time tells me that either they they um, they really think that they think I'm I'm being mean in some way when I say they should Google it, although I swear I still will stand by it as being the best advice I could give anyone. Or it's just not what they wanted for me. They didn't really want an answer to the question. They they wanted a publishing deal with with very little effort on their own part. But anyway, that is so so that that is the answer to that question. That's the short answer to that question. How did I get started with in publishing a book? How I got started writing my first book is is a different matter. And and to answer that question, we have to to kind of get in our way back machine and go all the way back to the summer of 2004. And at that time, I was working for Rolling Stone magazine. I was the director of events and event marketing, which basically means that I was the person who was throwing all of Rolling Stone magazine's parties. I also produced Rolling Stone's private concert series. I would like to back up here and say that I was never a person prior to this who had a cool job. Never had a cool job. I had some friends who had cool jobs. Uh, my best friend was vice president of crossover promotions at Columbia Records. That was a really cool job. I never had a job like that. <laughs> that that was a cool job. I had jobs that I thought were great. Um, I, I had jobs with nonprofit organizations that I really was passionate about and cared about, but I never had a, a cool job. So this Rolling Stone job was was my first experience and, and last, really, experience with having a cool job. Not that my job now as a full-time author and stay-at-home cat mom is not an amazing dream job because it definitely, definitely is. But I'm not sure if if writing about cats is is cool per se, whereas producing rock concerts for Rolling Stone magazine was indisputably cool, at least back then when Rolling Stone was still Rolling Stone and before it had been sold to, I don't know, whoever has it now. But anyway... So that's the job I was doing. And my job was in Rolling Stone's marketing department. And my boss was the chief marketing officer for Rolling Stone. And one day that person left and was replaced by someone else. And the new person who came in gave everyone in the whole marketing department, regardless of their job title or description, a sample writing assignment. He, he dredged up some old Rolling Stone ad campaign and had everybody take a crack at writing new copy for this old advertising campaign. And I guess he was probably just doing it to get a sense of who people were in the department or what. I, I'm not really sure, to tell you the truth, uh, to this day. But that was what he did. He had everybody write something. And I wrote, you know, I didn't put a ton of time. I didn't like slack it, you know, brush it off or, or, or not take it seriously. But I also didn't put a ton of time into it either. I wrote something and, and turned it in and then got back to doing my other work. And not very long afterwards, I ended up in a meeting with the new head of the marketing department, the new chief marketing officer. And basically what he told you, he so he had been very impressed with the copy that I wrote. 
And he gave it to his boss, who was the number two person at Wenner Media, which was the, the company that owned Rolling Stone magazine, who had also been very impressed. And that person passed the copy that I wrote to Jan Wenner himself. Jan Wenner, for those of you who don't know, was the founder of Rolling Stone magazine, the founder, the publisher, certainly a big deal in music and, and music critic circles. And everyone who's worked for Jan Wenner has an opinion of Jan Wenner. And and not everyone who's worked for Jan Wenner or, or Wenner Media has a great opinion of Jan Wenner. He was definitely a, a specific personality type. Um, and wow, I, I really didn't even want to get started down this road. I certainly never had any problems with Jan Wenner. And I ended up being called into his office essentially what happened was that a decision was, was Jan Wenner made the decision. He liked the copy that I wrote so much that I was now the only person who was going to write marketing copy for Rolling Stone magazine. And he called me into his office to discuss some projects that he wanted to, to start, some things that he wanted done, um, some new directions he wanted to, to take the marketing copywriting in, and so on and so forth. And so I did get to meet with Jan Wenner, which was great, but it was also a real bummer at first because I had had this great job. I, I was throwing parties and producing concerts. And, and again, I really do want to emphasize it was a cool job. And, and I will tell you how cool it was. So Lawrence and I were in Sweden. This was in the early days of, of my having this job at, at, at Rolling Stone magazine. We were in Sweden. Lawrence had lived in Sweden for one year in his 20s. He still has very good friends there. And we go back every couple of years to visit them. And so we were there visiting his friends. And we were at, I forget the name of the hotel, but but basically the, the nicest hotel in Stockholm. We were not staying there. Um, but we were meeting some friends for drinks. And who should we see in the lobby bar but Robert Plant and Jimmy Page, and we found out from a hotel staffer who we asked that they were there. They were getting some sort of award in Sweden, and that's why they were there. They weren't performing or anything like that. And I actually went up to them and, and hello, Mr. Plant and Mr. Page. My name is Gwen Cooper. I'm with Rolling Stone Magazine. I produced the private concert series, and, and I showed them my business card. And I just wanted to – I'm here in Stockholm on vacation, but I just wanted to congratulate you on the blah, blah, blah award, whatever the name of the award was, et cetera, et cetera. And Lawrence and I – Ended up chatting in a very civilized 15-minute chit-chat with Robert Plant and Jimmy Page. And again, cool th cool things like that, really, that, that's probably the coolest thing, actually. That's I mean, just in terms of strict coolness, that's probably the coolest thing that's ever happened to me. And it is certainly not something that would have happened to me if I hadn't been able to go up to them as a person who produced concerts for Rolling Stone as opposed to the person who wrote the copy that got advertisers interested in advertising in Rolling Stone, which is, of course, much less to the point if, if you are a rock star, I would imagine. Not the kind of thing that you'd be interested in. Certainly, I would not have put it to the test. I would not have had the nerve to go up to them. Anyway, so I had had this really cool job where I got to you know, throw parties and mingle. And there were other, you know, again, I produced the con the rock concerts for Rolling Stone. We got actual rock stars to perform for the magazine and I got to meet them. 
And now I was no longer going to get to meet them. And and that was definitely a come down at first. I also found that I could write the marketing copy that I was assigned to write and typically in about half a day, you know, I'm a, I'm a fairly fast writer. And so then I would have half a day at my leisure, which sounds delightful to have, you know, to have basically half days to go to your office, get your work done by lunchtime, and then be able to, to kind of snooze the way your, your way through the afternoon if you want to. But I have to say, you know, my my job doing events had been very demanding and very hectic and, and took a lot of hours and a lot of time and, and a lot of physical and mental effort. And I was left when I had so much, you know, it would have been one thing to have a little bit more free time, but to have so much more free time definitely left me feeling sort of purposeless, especially given that I just was not enjoying this new job as much as I had enjoyed the last one. But the thing about suddenly finding yourself with a lot more free time is that, of course, you have a lot more free time in which to think and to assess things. And I was, at this point, I was in my early 30s. And so a few things occurred to me. The first was that, you know, Jan Wenner is Jan Wenner. And again, whatever you think about him, whatever anyone who's worked for him thinks of the experience of working with him, Jan Wenner is still the Jan Wenner who has given us Hunter S. Thompson and Tom Wolfe and Cameron Crowe and P.J. O'Rourke and any number of other writers. Indisputably, Jan Wenner has an eye for talent. And, and I want to be very clear, at no point did anyone suggest that I should start writing for the magazine itself, that I should write a novel, that Jan Wenner was now my mentor and champion. There was nothing like that. There was nothing even remotely like that, just to be very clear. But by the same token, he liked my writing enough that he wanted my writing to be the writing that represented Rolling Stone to consumers and to advertisers and to others in our industry. And that wasn't nothing. That was not a meaningless thing. And it also occurred to me that, you know, he that this was my whole life, right? So my whole life was basically a series of people who were not friends who, and, and for whose opinion I hadn't asked, but making a point of telling me that they liked or, or admired my writing or, or that, you know, my writing was something that I should do professionally. All the way through elementary school, for example, I, I have lots of memories of winning prizes in writing contests that I was not even aware that I had entered because a teacher had entered the contest on my behalf, you know, taking something that I had written for a class assignment or whatever it was and entering it in this contest and me then winning prizes for these contests. And just so many teachers all the way through high school um, offering to work with me on their own time, on my writing. That was also something that I found replicated in college. And then once I was in a work environment, you know, Jan Wenner was not the first person to discover by accident that I could write well and and want me to start doing some writing related, performing some writing related tasks for a job that I had. He was just the most prestigious. And I will also have this as a side note, because I think, you know, another question that I get a lot from aspiring writers is how do I know if I'm good enough? And on the one hand, that that's a, that, that's sort of one of those questions like how much white fur on a black cat makes the cat no longer a black cat. That in, Insofar as it's not really an answerable question. There is no one specific answer to a question like that. But I will say that if you are 
good enough to be a professional writer, various people at various points in your life have told you this already. And I don't mean your friends or your relatives or or someone who who already knows you and cares about you. I mean someone who doesn't actually care about you or doesn't have to care about you and has no reason to tell you this if it's not true. And you know, I, I will not say I will not go so far as to say that if nobody has ever told you this, that you therefore are clearly not meant to be a writer. Everybody's specific circumstances are different, but I will say that it's probably less likely to be true that you should be a professional writer if literally no one in your no one with whom you have crossed paths has ever told you this at any point, that nobody who has read things that you've written has made a point of coming to you and saying, you should consider doing this professionally. Again, I, I had teachers in elementary school who assumed that they were grooming me for a career as a writer. They probably had a very different view on my job throwing parties for Rolling Stone magazine instead of being a writer than, than I would have had. But the point being that it occurred to me, you know, so all of this came together and it occurred to me that I was in my early 30s and I was at a point in my life. And again, you can you can write your first novel in your 50s or 60s. And, and for example, that novel Where the Crawdads Sing, I believe, is a debut novel by a woman who is in her 60s. And that is a huge, huge bestseller. So there's nothing that says that there's any point in your life beyond which it is too late for you to pick up the pen and start writing. By the same token, it's always easier to begin a new career when you're younger, especially when you don't have the obligations of a mortgage or kids, or in my case, Lawrence and I were dating, but we were not married. And there's just a certain amount of of mental and physical energy that you have earlier in your life. And I, at this point, I mean, I was not a kid anymore. I was in my early 30s. And, you know, I realized that it was always an idea that I had flirted with. It was always a dream that I had had. The idea of writing a book, of being a novelist, of being a writer was always a dream that I had had. And it was always a dream that I put aside to do other things that I thought were more practical or more realistic or more fun or cooler or whatever stupid thing uh, I was thinking at the time. And, you know, I asked myself how many people were going to have to tell me that I was a good writer before I tried to be a writer. And again, how many professionals? And I will include English teachers as professionals. And I just wondered how many professionals were going to have to tell me that I was a good writer before I tried to be a writer. And so that is the very long answer to the question how I got started writing my first book. And, and that was it. I decided to, to start working on a novel. And I started writing about South Beach because basically because it was the first idea that came into my head. But I wanted to I'm not sure that it, I'm still not sure that it was the best idea. Although it is a, it is a it was a fun book to write and, and hopefully a fun book for those who read it. Um, but it was the first idea that I had to write a novel because, it, you know, it seemed like a marketable idea to me that that South Beach in the 90s with the celebrities and and nightclubs and beaches and and general decadence that, that there was something marketable about that idea, especially because there were not a lot of novels about South Beach or about Miami Beach in general at that point that weren't crime novels. And I didn't want to lose momentum. You know, I had an idea. And, and so I didn't want to I just wanted to start doing something before the idea of doing something lost momentum. So I had this idea. I went in that. That was the direction that I went in. It became my first novel. It's a very long answer to the question, but that is how I got started 
writing my first book. And, um, you know, I kept my full-time job while I was working on it. So I would get up really early in the morning. I would get up at around 5 a.m. And I would write for two, two and a half hours before I would have to get in the shower at around 7.30 so that I could get to work, you know, at the door at 8 o'clock and be at work on time and or at the door, sorry, at the door at 8.30 to be on, to be at work on time. And I would come home after work and, and get straight back to writing. You know, Lawrence understood in the early days of our relationship that this is something I was working on. I didn't see as much of him as as one might normally see with a, a, a new partner in the early days of the relationship. And the rest, I guess, as they say, is history. That was my first book. And and I've been writing ever since. So thanks so much to Sherry Astrop for submitting the question that I answered this week. And I hope that that was it. It was certainly a very long answer, probably longer than you thought it would be, uh, certainly longer than I thought it would be when I started out. Uh, but that that is the story of how I got started with my first book, for better or for worse, for good or for ill. Hopefully some of you guys think it was for good. And speaking of books, I do have a new book coming out this April. It's going to be a follow-up to last year's The Book of Possum, Head Bonks, Raspy Tongues, and 101 Reasons Why Cats Make Us So, So Happy. This is going to be a follow-up to that, and it is called You Are Possum. Why Your Cats Love You and Why Loving Them Back Makes You a Better Person. That book is going to be available in April. I hope you guys are excited. I hope you'll check it out. And keep stay tuned for updates concerning the first book in the Homer Whodunit cozy mystery series, You Only Live Nine Times, and that will be coming your way July of 2021, so only a few months away. But until those books come out, I hope you will continue to meet me here every Thursday to curl up with a cattail. And that concludes this episode of Curl Up with a Cattail with Gwen Cooper. Don't forget to invite your feline-loving friends to listen to new episodes along with you. If you'd like to subscribe to this podcast, get your copy of a free new book about Homer the Blind Wondercat. Find out how you can get your name and your cat's name included in my next new book, or leave comments and questions for me to answer on future podcasts, head on over to GwenCooper.com now. Thanks so much for joining me, and don't forget to hug your cat today.